Well, Ole decided that he wanted to leave his town and move to another town. So when he did, he got there and he had moved in only to find out that he, a Lutheran, had moved into a whole town of Catholics. Which is not a problem until Lent, the season of Lent came and Ole started barbecuing beef every Friday night. So what he did every weekend, he just enjoyed barbecuing beef. Well, his neighbors, of course, can't eat red meat on Fridays during Lent, and so they, you know, they came to Ole and said, uh, Ole, you know, since you're the only Lutheran here in a whole town of Catholics, and there's not a Lutheran church for miles around, we think that you need to be a Catholic like us. Ole says, okay. So they go through the routine, they go through this ceremony, the priest comes up to Ole and says, uh, Ole, you were born a Lutheran, you were, you were raised a Lutheran, but now, and he spreads some incense on Ole's head, you're a Catholic. Well, everyone was so happy. You know, Ole is now part, part of the family. And then Friday comes, and they smell barbecue from Ole's backyard. Well, they walk over to his backyard, and they say, Ole, you're not supposed to be, uh, you're not supposed to be doing this. And just, just as they walk up and tell him that, they hear Ole saying, You were raised a cow. You were born a cow. But now, and he throws salt on it, you're a fish. You know, it's easy when you're in a culture that's different than yours, that doesn't share your convictions whether they're right, wrong, or just a matter of taste, to redefine meanings a little bit. We're not going to call a, a, a cow a cow. It's not beef, it's fish. We're going to call it something else when everyone knows what it really is. We're going to redefine what's right and wrong in order to make, make it politically correct or to make it all, everybody get along or to make you part of the culture. And the temptation for us as Christians is we have a very hard and fast word of God, even with all the grace that's built into the word of God and the scriptures, there's so much that's black and white because holiness represents the character of God, which does not fudge on what's right and wrong. And when we are called to follow a God who is absolutely holy, it becomes a major challenge to find how to do that in a culture that is bent on redefining right and wrong in order to make uh, my personal preferences become right. We see this more and more in our culture, and we all know that. But as Christians, we need to understand that this is not a new thing. It's sort of a new, newer thing here for us in the United States. But throughout history, God's people have always dealt with this tension and Daniel in the Old Testament was a fine example of a man that had to do that. What is faithfulness? What does a model of faithfulness look like in a godless culture? And what can we expect if we are faithful, both from the culture and from our God? Well, turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 6. 
As we work our way through just a single message from each book of the Bible, we come to a book named for its author and its main character, Daniel. His name, Daniel, means God is my judge. I love that Daniel is sort of a common name today, or, or people will go by Dan or Daniel. And I'll, if I happen to know what somebody's name means, often they have Hebrew names, sometimes Greek names, but, but I love Daniel. Whenever you see like a waiter or someone who, who um, has the name Daniel, I say, you know what your name means? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And when I say your name means God is my judge, it's, usually the expression is not a good one. That is my name? God is my judge? Well, Daniel, in the early part of the book, he is taken in the earliest of the three waves of exiles. Daniel, along with Ezekiel, were taken, and they were taken really to two different uh, areas. Ezekiel ministered among the common man. Daniel ministered in the courts. Daniel's audience was primarily king's. Ezekiel's audience was the lay people in exile. And remember that God had taken his people into the promised land he gave Abraham with the condition that they be faithful. They were not faithful, and so he took them out of the land. And that that being taken out of the land occurred in three different waves of the exile. Daniel was taken in one of the the early waves of the exile. And we're told in the early part of the book, he's presented as a teenager that's taken... And like you were saying, Ryan, it's wonderful to be able to see young people with a passion for God. And they're still, they still exist. I hope that you know some of them. Uh, our daughters are that way. And it is one of the greatest thrills in Kathy and my life that we have children that absolutely love Jesus Christ and that want to walk with him and be faithful to him. Daniel was such a young man. He was one who had determined, the text tells us, that he would not defile himself with the king's food. For Daniel, it was, it was a defilement to eat this, and he personally had a personal conviction that he would stay true to the law of God. Well, now Daniel is not a teenager anymore. In Daniel chapter 6, we're told that this is the ministry of Darius. In fact, if you look back to the end of Daniel chapter 5, we're told that Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. This is the year, let's see if I can remember when this year is. I think it's the year 539 B.C., so it's 66 years after Daniel's exile. He has been in exile for 66 years, and he now stands, not as a teenager, but as an 83-year-old man. And what we can learn from this man, Daniel, is practical, because it is the culture that we live in. Daniel 6, look at verse 1. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them... Three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and the satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. 
Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Darius, Cyrus the king of Persia, likely appointed Darius sort of as a ruler of this particular area. Uh, some critics of the book of, of the Bible, or, and particularly of the book of Daniel, will say, you know, there's no record of Darius in secular history. It's probably because he was sort of a, a piece of lint on the page of history. He wasn't very significant, and he didn't rule that long. He only ruled for a matter of weeks. And we're told that in this particular time period, Darius was given, he was appointed to this uh, leadership, and he wanted to appoint these satraps over the kingdom and three commissioners over these satraps. And then over these three commissioners, he planned to put Daniel as the number one man. Daniel was about to be promoted to be the most important person in all of the country under Darius's rule. And the commissioners and satraps were jealous. I don't know if you've ever been in a corporate situation or um, it, it can be nonprofit. It can, it can even be in the ministry, believe it or not. When there is power grabbing, when, you, when, when ideally on paper everyone is pulling in the same direction and the reality is everyone's pulling for themselves and they're really trying to figure out a way for them to get the promotion, for them to get the credit, regardless of who really is the best person for the job. Ugh, drives me nuts. And it, 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 is a, it is such a challenge to be in that kind of an environment. Ministry is exactly the same. So these individuals begin doing what all politicians do in their, to their opponents these days. They try to dig up some trash. And we see this every election. We've got commercials that dig up the trash of whoever the opponent is. But when they started, started trying to do this with Daniel, they couldn't. Daniel was clean. An 83-year-old man, and they could find nothing in his history to bring back up. Not even back in you know, high school when he said something wrong, which is usually how far back the dirt has to go today. They couldn't find a thing in Daniel's life. For Daniel, a beef was a beef, a fish was a fish. They tried to find his hand in the cookie jar, except that he never had his hand in the cookie jar. Daniel was a man of integrity, and he lived it. I read about a guy some years ago who forgot back in 1931 to pay the $5 fee for renting the ballroom where his senior class had their Christmas uh, party. He, he forgot. And then as the years passed, he just sort of ignored it. Now, finally, his conscience got the best of him, and at the age of 69, he finally wrote the check with $513 interest. He figured 7% interest over all those years and wrote the check for $513 interest plus the $5 for renting the facility. And he made a comment that I thought was worth repeating. He said, it wasn't a gift. It was the satisfaction of a debt. I'm just glad I was in a position to make it right after all these years. I like that integrity. And Daniel was a man of integrity. You could go back to Daniel's senior class Christmas dance, and he was clean. So what are you going to do? 
You got to dig up dirt on somebody. You got to find something against him when there's nothing against him. What are you going to do? Well, since they couldn't get him for doing something wrong, they had to get him for doing something right. They redefined the law to where now it's going to be it's going to be wrong to do something right. We see that in our day. And that's exactly what happened in Daniel's day. They decided to change the law. They had to lie. They go to the king and they lie and they they say, you know, we've all gotten together. All of us leaders have gotten together and decided, O king, that for a month we're not going to pray. No one can pray to any other god but you. Oh, wow, the king was just flattered. He says, yeah, where do I sign? That sounds great. And he signs it. And the law of the Medes and Persians, you've heard that phrase, the law of the Medes and Persians has become sort of a catchphrase for a law that's made that can't be changed. And that in itself is a dumb law. But that's the law, that was the law back then. The law of the Medes and Persians. Once it's signed, it's done. And the penalty was terrible. Whoever prayed to any other god other than the king would be thrown into a den of lions, hungry lions. And they said, we've all agreed. Well, Daniel wasn't there to agree to it. Daniel knew exactly what would happen if he was faithful to God. Not only would he lose his life, but God would lose a a public servant, a voice of reason, a voice of integrity in a context of godlessness. Daniel had a lot to lose. Well, look at Daniel's response. Look down at verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Why did Daniel pray toward Jerusalem? Keep your finger here, if you would, in Daniel 6 and turn back to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings 8 is a context in when, where King Solomon has just finished the temple. He's just finished building the temple, and it's his dedicatory service. A lot of sacrifices were made, and Solomon, during his faithful days, gives this great prayer in 1 Kings 8. And we're going to read part of Solomon's word, part of Solomon's prayer here. Look at 1 Kings 8, all the way down at verse 46. He's talking about the people, uh, God's people. And he says, verse 46, When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, if they take thought in the land where they have been taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land uh, of those who have taken them captive, saying, We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have acted wickedly. If they turn to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray to you toward the land which you have given to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name, then 
Hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you, and make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive, that they may have compassion on them. Why did Daniel pray toward Jerusalem? Because of this. Because Solomon, when he dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, said, Lord, if, if when your people sin against you and they're taken out of the land, which became prophetic, not just a prayer of potential, but really a, a prayer of prophecy here, and they, and they repent and they turn and they pray toward Jerusalem, be merciful to them. So turn back to Daniel now, Daniel 6. Daniel knew that the document was signed, we're told in verse 10, and that he would be thrown into the lion's den if he prayed. And yet he did it anyway. Daniel knew God's word. How do, you know, how do we know that he knew God's word? Because we're specifically told in his roof chamber, his windows opened toward Jerusalem and he continued praying on his knees three times a day. Why three times a day? Probably in conjunction with the sacrifices. And praying and giving thanks before God as he had been doing previously. Daniel knew God's word. His heart was with God's word. And he was longing for the restoration of Jerusalem. And so he was praying. And uh, it, was a pr- it was a prayer of personal conviction, and he kept doing it. Well, here's a lesson, a principle that Daniel shows us here, and we'll see it bearing out as the text goes on, and we also see, see it bearing out in our own lives, and it's this. Determine to keep your personal time with God each day in spite of other pressing demands, like death. Determined to keep your personal time with God each day in spite of other pressing demands. Daniel was about to be the number one man in the country. You don't think he had a demanding schedule? He was a busy man, and yet three times a day, we're told, he withdrew and prayed. This was a priority. And it, it was a priority that he was able to be successful at, because if we're told that he did it three times a day, then he had a plan. It was in his daytimer. It was on his calendar to pray three times a day. He didn't just try to squeeze it in. You can't squeeze it in when you're at his level. You have to make it a priority. Otherwise, it doesn't happen. Daniel determined to keep his personal time with God, we're told, as he had been doing previously. This wasn't a new thing. This wasn't something that he did just to show how holy he was now that the document had been signed. This was something that Daniel had been doing as a pattern of life, that the document with the threat would not change because Daniel saw it as the right thing to do. He continued to pray in spite of other pressing demands. Now, I say other pressing demands because we probably don't have death threats on us if we pray, like Daniel did. But we have pressing demands. Every one of us. Every one of us has pressing demands. Daniel did not rationalize his way around the problem. Would have been easy to do. Hey, it's only 30 days. I mean, we can make this real easy. I'll just 
I'll just pray without going home. Or I'll just close my windows to where I'm not praying toward Jerusalem. I'll change it in some way where they don't know I'm praying, but I can still pray. I can still be faithful. They just don't have to know about it. Daniel saw that as a breach of integrity. If he had been doing it openly at first, in fact, that's how they knew to make this law, because they knew. You can set your watch by Daniel going up there and praying. We know he prays. He wasn't doing it to be a show, but he was doing it. His life was such that you couldn't ignore his walk with God. Have you ever noticed that when it comes time for you to spend time with the Lord, that there are 37 good reasons why later is a better time? Your to-do list is, you know, a mile long. And we wake up with this constant feeling of, you know what, there's something else I need to be doing. It's that way with me as well. And I, I spend time with the Lord first thing, not, you know, it sounds real holy, but it, the fact is, if I don't do it first, it probably isn't going to happen. Because I have a busy, busy day every day. But time with the Lord is a regular part of my life because without it, I am not able to be a faithful man. Daniel uh, gives us that model, determined to keep your personal time with God each day in spite of other pressing demands. It was scheduled. It was part of it. Well, Daniel's opponents felt that Daniel's devotion had played right into their hands. Look at Daniel chapter 6, verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, the statement is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then, as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel, and even until sunset they kept exerting himself to rescue him. He kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. If we're going to make our spiritual disciplines a priority in life, then there's going to be some fallout that comes with that. If we're going to walk with Christ, the world's going to notice, and the world is not always going to thank us. If we're going to make our spiritual disciplines a priority, we've got to do it trusting God with the results of what happens. For Daniel, the results were lions. For us, it may be that we don't get everything done that we wanted to get done that day or that we get laughed at, or that we get ridiculed. In our increasingly secular society that it's doing all it can to make right wrong, or wrong right, I should say. Well, you know the rest of the story. We don't have to read it. 
They cast Daniel in the lion's den. God sends his angels to shut the mouth of the lions. Daniel's rescued. The commissioners and the satraps, their wives and children, are all thrown into the lion's den, and they die. That's it. That's the end of chapter 6, and it ends like a storybook. Look it down at verse 25. Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. So we rush to the end of chapter 6 with still plenty of time to go because we're not done with Daniel's life or story. We have made a beeline to the end of chapter 6 to get to chapter 9. So turn to Daniel chapter 9 and let's continue. Let's look at a part of the same story that isn't with Daniel chapter 6. Because if you'll notice in the very first verse of chapter 9, we're told in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the son of Xerxes, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. This is the same Darius from chapter 6. And remember, that Darius only ruled a matter of weeks. So we know that the event that we're about to read in chapter 9 very likely occurred in the same time, about the same time as chapter 6. And the text isn't clear, and I'm not saying that it is conclusively the same thing, but it very well could be that what was it that Daniel prayed and what occurred during all that prayer time that was so important to Daniel, but maybe it was part of what occurred here in Daniel chapter 9. So we read verse 1. Look at verse 2 as this plot thickens. It says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Daniel is reading his Bible, and he notices as he gets to Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11 through 13, that Jeremiah says the exile is only going to last 70 years. Daniel has been, if, uh, if you put paper to, paper to, uh, pencil to paper and do the math, if the exile began at 539 B.C., or I should say the, this was 539 B.C., it has been 66 years since the exile started. And Jeremiah says it's only going to last 70. Only four years to go. Daniel goes, it's about time somebody started praying. And Daniel says, I'm going to pray. He is praying for the completion, the end of verse 2, the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem. He is praying for the restoration of his people. And if this is the content of what he was praying every day, three times a day, back in Daniel chapter 6, you know, uh, here's another reason why it's such a passion for Daniel to be praying in spite of the fact that he could be thrown to the lions. He is praying for the restoration of his people. It's been, he's been in the land uh, 
the land of exile for 66 years, and Daniel prays this wonderful prayer. We won't read the whole prayer. I, I wish we had time to read the whole prayer. It is a marvelous prayer of confession, a marvelous prayer of confession, national confession for the restoration of Jerusalem. And very much like what Solomon said in 1 Kings 8. We looked at 1 Kings 8. If you read Solomon's prayer, it's, it lines up very closely with what uh, Daniel is praying here as well. But it's not just national. It's also personal. Look at uh, verse 20, down at verse 20. Daniel writes, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, that's the temple mount, and while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. God sends the angel Gabriel to Daniel. And Daniel is greeted with the words that he is highly esteemed. Okay, here's a trivia question. Where else in the Bible has the angel Gabriel appeared to someone out of the blue and said, hello, one who is highly esteemed? Mary. The content of Gabriel's words to Mary was about the Christ, about Messiah. In fact, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. Good news. So when Gabriel, centuries earlier, I love that. you got Gabriel who doesn't get old. Angels live forever. Gabriel is talking with Daniel. What do you think Daniel, who is also highly esteemed, is going to hear a message about? The Messiah. I love it that every time Gabriel shows up, he gets to tell people about Christ. Wonderful connection. And so... Uh, Gabriel says, I'm going to tell you what's coming. Look at these next verses. Oh, these are so dense. Remember those, uh, those firecrackers? What were they called? Uh, snakes or worms? Or, but they're these little black pills. And if you light them, you know, and then step back, then they, they start snaking out like snakes. It's really cool as a, as a kid. I wish we had one right here I could show you. <laughs> this passage is like that. You light it, and it just expands. This is so dense with truth and prophecy, and is, it, is, uh, it is wonderfully significant. John Walver, the great theologian of yesteryear from Dallas Seminary, said that the book of Daniel is the key to prophetic interpretation. And he is so right. Boy, if we didn't have Daniel, we would be missing so much in our understanding of the end times, not only of history and past and seeing if God's been so faithful with this kingdom, this kingdom, this kingdom, this kingdom, exactly coming along just as Daniel said, we can have confidence that what hasn't happened yet is also going to happen. Well, now we're about to look at this wonderful section of prophecy. Look at verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, let me just pause there for a moment. It's hard not to take this word by word, 
but your people and your holy city. In other words, this is a prophecy for the Jews and for Jerusalem. This is not a prophecy that includes the church. This is a prophecy for Jews and for Jerusalem. It's for Israel. Seventy weeks to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. As Dr. Toussaint used to say, this is freighted with meaning. And oceans of ink have been spilled on these verses. And it's so true. But here's the essence of what basically Gabriel is revealing to Daniel. Even though Israel will return to the land in 70 years, Daniel already knew that from Jeremiah. What Daniel didn't know is that that return is not the ultimate restoration. Daniel had been praying for the restoration. Now he's going to get insight that the return to the land is not the ultimate uh, restoration. And he's told specifically here that it will be 70 weeks or 70 sevens. The, the week, if you have a, a note in your margin, the, the week is a sort of a metaphor for a unit of seven, specifically a unit of seven years. So if we have 70 sevens or 70 uh, times seven, we're talking 490 years. 490 years have been decreed for your people. Verse 25 says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, okay, so there's the beginning point, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So, let's do the math. Seven weeks plus 62 weeks is 69 weeks. Multiplied by seven years is 483 years. So, from the time of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, which was time of Nehemiah, 444 B.C., 444 B.C., add 483 years to that. And don't we can't add uh, solar years like we have. We have to add Jewish years, which are lunar years or lunar months, which is a little goofy. It's like every 29 and a half days. Not for us. We, we, we have uh, leap years and leap, we leap over stuff, but they did every 29 and a half days. So it's sort of a bit of odd math that takes some, some thinking through it. But if you do 483 Jewish years from 444 B.C., guess what year you get? A.D. 33, the very year that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, presenting himself as the Messiah. Daniel nailed it to the day. In fact, Jesus understood it as such, and we won't turn there, but you might jot down in your margin next to verse 25, where it says, until Messiah the Prince, jot in your margin Luke 19, 42. Luke chapter 19, verse 42, where Jesus told Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, basically presenting himself as the Messiah officially for the very first time. And Jesus said in Luke 19, 42, if you had known this day, the things which were for peace, but they have been hidden from your eyes. 
Jesus was referring to the prophecy in which Daniel said, if you, that you can know when the Messiah is coming if you'll just do the math. From 444 B.C. to A.D. 33 is the time. And if they had done it, Jesus would have crossed the Mount of Olives on the back of the donkey. There would have been a big banner draped on the walls of Jerusalem that said, Welcome, Messiah. But Jesus said, It's been hidden from your eyes. Why? Because they didn't believe him. They didn't accept him. Well, let's keep reading here. Look at verse 26. The plot thickens. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, that's a different person, will destroy the city and the sanctuary, so destroy Jerusalem and the temple, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And he, that's that prince, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, that's seven years, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Wow. Daniel sees the death and resurrection of Jesus. He sees the destruction of Jerusalem, the rise of the Antichrist, the rebuilding of the temple that's going to be rebuilt in the tribulation period, the covenant that the Antichrist makes with, with Israel, the breaking of that covenant halfway through those, uh, that, those seven years of tribulation. Incidentally, if we've done the math, we've got 483 years, but remember, 77s, which is 490 years, is for Israel. So there's a missing seven years. That missing seven years is the seven-year tribulation that occurs at the very end. So we're still waiting for that, that, those seven years to occur. They haven't occurred yet. And Daniel tells us that they will occur in the future. Paul really gets into this uh, in the Thessalonian epistles, which is great. And it, I love it. If, if you'll just take the time to study prophecy, the Bible fits together beautifully. And the prophetic timeline is not lying on the surface. You know, to, it's not like reading the book of Proverbs. You know how it is when you're, when you're rushed and you want to you wanna read the Bible? You make a beeline for Proverbs because, I mean, it's just like eating whipped cream. <laughs> but biblical prophecy, reading the book of Daniel, reading the book of Revelation, reading the Thessalonian epistles, putting these things together, and, and it's not eating whipped cream. I mean, it's going to the store. It's buying eggs. It's, it's, it's putting everything together from scratch, and it takes all day to cook. And then finally it comes out and you eat it and then you got to clean the kitchen. It is hard work, but it is a wonderful meal and it's worth it. So if you're wondering what in the world to read in your Bible, um, study prophecy. It, is, it will give you great confidence in the future because you will see that God has nailed it in the past. So Daniel gets this wonderful insight about the future. Okay, so we've finished Daniel 9 here. Now, we're not quite done. Slip back to Daniel 7, and let's add another. Let's put a bow on this, this uh, on all of this. Let's put a ribbon on it. Daniel chapter 7, look at verse 
9. This is another vision. This is actually about 14 years before what we've looked at now, during the first year of Belshazzar. Different king, different time. Daniel is 14 years younger, but it all fits together. Daniel 7, look down at verse 9. Daniel writes, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. Now let's pause for a second. We haven't looked at the horn, but if you looked, look up back at verse 8, this, there's a fourth beast in, in the vision of uh, Daniel gives, which represents the Roman Empire. And there is, in verse 8, a little horn who comes up among them. That little horn is what we know, who we know as the Antichrist. And so in, back in verse 11, I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn, or the Antichrist, was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, that an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Now look at these verses. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This, again, points to the Messiah. In fact, we're, we're given here in verse 13, one like a son of man. This was Jesus' favorite uh, designation of himself, the son of man. He talks about himself in those terms. The son of man is going to do this. The son of man is going to do that. It points back to this. One like a son of man. This is a messianic prophecy, and Jesus is basically saying, I'm the guy in Daniel 7. I am that son of man who is going to give, going to have an eternal kingdom. And notice also it says in verse 13, with the clouds of heaven. Remember when Caiaphas pointed his bony finger at Jesus and said, are you the Messiah, the son of God? Remember Jesus answered, he said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He was referring to this verse, which is why Caiaphas reacted like he did. Caiaphas clearly understood that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, which is like, how do you answer if you really are the Messiah? They already had their minds made up. Well, here's the second principle that the text gives us today, and it is worthy of our devotion. Here it is. God, our God is worthy of our personal devotion because he is sovereign over history and eternity. He is worthy of our personal devotion because he is sovereign over history and eternity. That's the big picture. 
The small picture is what we've already talked about, that we determine to keep our personal time with God each day in spite of other pressing demands. That seems like small potatoes in light of the second one, but it is because of the second one that our God is worthy of personal devotion because He is sovereign over history, and we can see that throughout Daniel's prophecy, but also over eternity. Jesus Christ is going to be given a kingdom that we're told here will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. And that is the kingdom that if we believe in him, that we get to participate in. We have to keep that big picture in mind when the pressing needs of our day want to squeeze Jesus out of our priorities. We keep the big picture in mind and then suddenly we have the motivation to open the word, to listen from God as we read the Bible, and to talk to God like Daniel did as we pray to the Lord. I love that. Well, let's bow together in prayer, and I want to begin our prayer by reading to you from the book of Hebrews. I'll just read a few verses from Hebrews chapter 11, again, to put everything in perspective. So let's pray. By faith they shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us." Father, how essential it is that we keep the big picture in mind. It's so easy in the day-to-day -day responsibilities and distractions of our lives to look at the news and to see the wheels coming off and to feel like that there is no ground being made for the kingdom of God. It's frustrating in the day-to-day -day struggle against sin and against temptation and against the pressures of the world and materialism, and idolatry, and compromise, to not be a man or a woman like Daniel, who from the time he was a teenager all the way to an elderly man determined that he would be faithful, even if it meant death. Father, we don't know what our future holds, whether the kind of persecution that Daniel endured or what we read about in Hebrews is coming about in our lives. But in some sense, that doesn't matter. Because our personal devotion to you, we want to recommit to you. Our personal devotion, in spite of the pressing demands of our day. And we can do this because we remember that you are worthy of our personal devotion. You are sovereign over history, you're sovereign over eternity, and you're sovereign over Tuesday. 
everything. You are our God, and you're worthy. Thank you for a glimpse in the future through the pen of Daniel and the the promise that he had that one day he would rise again and that he would enter into his reward. Thank you for the promise that you've given us that we also, like Daniel, can stay faithful to the very end and trust that the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will one day be the kingdom of this world. And we pray in his name. Amen.